I'm Mark Lips, director of the project on Middle East political science. Welcome back to the Middle East Books podcast, our series of conversations with authors with new books in the field. We're joined today by Elizabeth Nugent of Yale University, author of the new book, After Repression, How Polarization Derails Democratic Transition, just published by Princeton University Press. Elizabeth, thanks for joining us. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. So tell us about this book. What do you think the major contributions of this book are to the field? Yeah, so the book starts out with a puzzle. Um, As I was writing my dissertation, I was uh, quite interested in why Egypt and Tunisia, despite, you know, obviously these are not perfectly matched cases, but they had a lot of initial um, similarities in their transitions. Um, You know, their long ruling authoritarian presidents resigned, former opposition now in charge of the transition. Uh, The Islamist secular cleavage, which is somewhat unique to the Middle East, uh, was salient in both of these transitions. And you had Islamists that won very similar percentages in early constituent assembly elections. Um, But, you know, I I started my dissertation, or I started my PhD, I guess, around 2011. And by the time I was starting to go to the field, it was clear that Tunisia and Egypt were in very different positions in terms of democratic consolidation. Um, By January 2014, Tunisia, you know, had had um, successful NCA elections, um, passed the constitution, held second elections later that year saw a very peaceful transfer of power, while in Egypt, a constitutional failure occurred in December 2012. There's a lot of polarization. There's a coup in July 2013, and you end up with, you know, as we now know, sadly, um, authoritarian retrenchment on a, a scale that was probably even worse than, than, you know, what the Mubarak regime was. So when I started looking at these cases, um, you know, I went back to the democratic transitions literature, a lot of it driven by the third wave. Um, And this idea of polarization was really key, but there wasn't quite an explanation for where it emerged from under authoritarian regimes. So, you know, Egypt was a case I had worked in quite a bit. Um, uh, It was clear to me that there was quite a bit of tension between the Muslim Brotherhood and other members of the opposition. Um, And when I started my fieldwork in Tunisia, it was clear, you know, to me, again, coming from Egypt with um, kind of as my baseline, Uh, how differently people spoke about each other. And so the more that I dug in, the more that repression, the way in which the Ben Ali regime and the Mubarak regime repressed these different opposition groups was very key for why these two different places ended up very differently polarized. Um, And I should, you know, I should just clarify the way I talk about repression in the book includes both affective polarization, so the way that groups feel about each other, um, and also preference polarization, which is the extent to which they disagree with each other. Um, I think the way I refer to it in the book is the extent to which they dislike each other and the extent to which they disagree with each other. Um, So the argument, uh, it's kind of a, you know, a two-step argument. Repression conditions politically relevant identities, which then condition levels of political polarization. Um, I draw on quite a bit of literature that establishes two of the three mechanisms that I look at in the book, a social mechanism, literally who groups, you know, interact with, uh, and an organizational mechanism, um, how the structures of different organizations react to repression. What I think, you know, is the main contribution of the book is a psychological mechanism, that repression reveals certain information about who else is, you know, kind of an in-group member, to go back to social identity theory, uh, in a way that either can create a bridging Uh, identity, as we see in Tunisia, where members of individual opposition groups come to identify more strongly as the opposition rather than, you know, for example, Anatha. Uh, And in Egypt, where we have a targeted repressive environment, 
the brotherhood really, you know, feels this uniquely uh, victimized identity and it, it increases over time. That's, it's really interesting. So why don't we, why don't we go back uh, uh, to the beginning of the argument then? Mm-hmm. Um, you describe repression in Tunisia and Egypt as different. Explain exactly how, how are they different and how does it matter? So the two terms I use in the book um, are widespread and targeted repression. Tunisia is a case of widespread repression. Um, the way that I describe it is that all groups are treated equally. They're all repressed in this case. Um, you know, you end up with groups in the same prison and exile spaces. Um, they're uh, being treated very similarly by the state, and it ends up creating a bridging structure. You see a lot of different kinds of um, uh, you know, human rights-based NGOs in Tunisia that are quite um, efficient, and you see a lot of participation from different organizations. In Egypt, targeted wait, repression... Wait, on, on Tunisia, though, could explain exactly yeah. what you mean by that. So when you say there's widespread repression and there's a bridging mechanism, like, describe what, what, what exactly does that mean? Yeah, so Tunisia had... Um, what I describe as overlapping waves against the opposition. Mm-hmm. First, you know, Islamists were targeted between 89 and 91. Then the regime went after leftist parties between 91 and 2002. Um, and then center left parties between 1997 and 2005. Um, and so the way that I look at that is there are multiple groups. They might be affected at different times, but they're all in jail at the same time. Basically everyone, um, you know, is released in 2005 for different geopolitical reasons. Um, but these political prisoners are being treated the same quite harshly. Um, They're being exiled to the same spaces in Europe. They're being held in the same prison spaces. And as a result, it's both a bridging, it creates both a bridging identity where members of Islamist leftists and center left parties um, start to, you know, recognize these other members of the opposition are being treated in the same way as I am. Um, It creates, you know, positive affect, uh, more literal room for people to be discussing these issues. Um, But you also see, you know, the LDTH organization is one example that I talk about in the book. Um, You know, there's basically a shifting of what political contestation is about to issues of uh, human rights, which all groups can get on board with. And they're Um, literally sharing prison cells and... Yeah. Um, In the book, I talk quite a bit about this. Um, Rory McCarthy's book has also done quite a good job of looking at, um, you know, the way in which uh, secular, uh, for lack of a better term, and Islamist uh, opposition members were in these cells together. um, And it really humanized what could have been, you know, quite a polarized contest. Um, You know, people had very similar experiences in these cells. Their families were similarly treated by the state. Um, in a way that, you know, brought these kinds of uh, potentially, you know, very different groups of people together. And then Egypt, it looked quite different. Right. So in Egypt, under the Mubarak regime in particular, you have targeted repression against the Brotherhood, where the Brotherhood is is treated very differently from other groups. Um, you know, they're repressed at, at kind of these regular five-year intervals around national elections. They are held in different prison spaces. Um, and um, Khalil El-Lanani, who's I know affiliated with POMEPS as well, um, has, tar- has uh, demonstrated how targeted repression, um, you know, forced the Brotherhood to become very defensive in terms of its structure. And that also precludes its ability to work with other groups. It makes them more closed off and insular. Right. And within that, you know, it's not just the literal organization, but there's, you know, increasing requirements for membership. Loyalty is really important. Dedication to the group. 
all of this is facilitating a very um, strong in-group identity with the brotherhood serving as the basis of that identity rather than kind of this bridging identity um, thinking about the opposition as all being victimized by the regime. And so this is developing then over the course of decades where you're seeing the groups being formed and the individuals within these groups being formed in fundamentally different ways. Yeah, absolutely. In both cases, in Tunisia, I'm looking from 1987 on, so when Ben Ali comes to power in November of that year, um, and in Egypt, I'm looking from 1981 on. Although, you know, as I talk about in the book, there are similarities about the way that the previous regimes repressed. Um, in Tunisia under Bourguiba, you also had a very widespread repressive regime. Um, in Egypt, the regime has sometimes shifted who it targets. So under Nasser, the Brotherhood was also targeted. Um, under Sadat, you have more of a targeting of uh, leftists. Uh, and then it switches back to the, the Brotherhood. But you're always in Egypt seeing targeted repression and co-optation being utilized in different ways against different groups. You also talk about different types of repression and, 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 and the, the, the toll that it takes, um, whether physical, psychological. Um, it's not just an abstract thing um, where which can the, the term repression can kind of uh, have a distancing effect on what this actually means for the people who are going through it. Yeah, I mean, that was um, an initial insight I had in the project where, you know, I'm not the first one to have this. I think Christian Davenport um, has a really nice description of how academic understandings of repression tend to focus on how it benefits the regime. So how it focuses um, opposition attention in different ways, you know, uh, changes political opportunity structures um, and prolongs the longevity of the regime. But it really leaves out the fact that repression is not just, you know, this behavioral constraint. It's, it's very physical. It's extremely psychological. Um, I don't go into this as much in the book as, as uh, has been reported elsewhere, but it's also, you know, it's not only targeted at the individuals who are mobilizing for politics. In most of the cases, these are men, um, but their wives, their families were also affected by this. In, in the case of Tunisia, the Ben Ali regime used quite a bit of, you know, um, sexual violence against the wives of uh, members of the opposition. Um, so it's not just, you know, this behavioral constraint in the way we've really thought about it before in political science, it's very personal. Um, and the way in which people make sense of this really terrible um, experience is important for how they perform politics down the road. Now here, maybe it'd be useful for you to uh, tell, tell the, uh, the listeners a little bit about the, uh, the research that you did here and uh, the people you talked to uh, as you tried to make sense of the effects of repression. Yeah, so the research for this was, um, you know, my doctoral dissertation um, started around 2012. Um, and I spent a good year in both Tunisia and Egypt uh, doing the fieldwork for this. Um, in this case, you know, it was very much the qualitative uh, ethnographic component that was driving what um, I ended up doing later in the book, which was conducting an experiment to figure out if, you know, my intuition about the mechanisms was correct. Um, but yeah, you know, I, Egypt has become increasingly difficult to do research in, but I was able to spend some time 2012-2013. I had um, also spent quite a bit of time before the Arab Spring in Egypt, so I feel like I had a good base um, for Egyptian politics. Uh, but as it became more repressive, I did end up doing quite a bit more of my research outside of the country. Members of the Muslim Brotherhood who were not jailed or, um, you know, otherwise uh, repressed by the regime ended up in places like Istanbul and London. 
And so I was able to access certain groups of opposition that were abroad. In Tunisia, it's become you know, much uh, easier to do research there. And so I spent about six months intensively in Tunisia doing these um, interviews with people, talking to them about um, their experiences. Uh, you know, at first it was quite um, exploratory, but having gone to Tunisia with a very firm grasp of how these things worked in Egypt, it just was so apparent to me how differently members of the opposition spoke about each other in Tunisia. Um, and I think I, I mentioned this in the book, I think it made it through to the final cut. Um, you know, in a place like Egypt, when you wanted the number of, uh, at the end of my interviews, I would always ask, you know, who else should I be talking to? Uh, and can you put me in, in contact with them? And in Egypt, it was always very much like within the group that I was talking to. So Brotherhood members would recommend other Brotherhood members, often give me their contact information. Um, in Tunisia, everybody had each other's phone numbers um, and were willing to put me in touch. So it's, you know, it's a small anecdote, but it became, mm -hmm. I think, enlightening in terms of the way in which these people talk to each other behind the scenes. Okay, let's switch over to the other side now. So that, that gives us a good sense of how you're thinking about repression. Let's talk about the polarization. Mm -hmm. um, so you divide between, you said, the, the, the affective and the preference. So basically dislike versus disagree. Mm -hmm. um, how, do those, how do those interact with each other in, in your cases? Yeah, so in my cases, um, they're working together. They, they track together. So positive affect between the opposition and Tunisia correlates with um, a higher level of agreement on political differences. Um, here, the role of religion and politics, where in Egypt, negative affect between the opposition, so really strong, you know, vitriolic dislike for each other, uh, tracks with disagreement over the role of politics and religion. Um, and I do think, you know, for listeners, that is a place where this book can certainly be uh, extended. Um, what I do in the book is, is look at uh, studies of polarization um, that are better developed in places like the United States. Um, and even those scholars have not quite figured out yet what comes first or how these two things are related. Um, you know, it's, it's an open question. I think, can you work with somebody with whom you disagree, but you like, uh, versus somebody, you know, that you really like, but disagree? Um, was that the same thing? Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I just remember back after 9-11, um, there was this, uh, this line that was going around about people who were kind of uh, pushed to the right by the experience of 9-11. Mm -hmm. And it went something like, ever since 9-11, I'm suddenly outraged over Jane Fonda. Hmm. <laughs> and, 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 and the idea was that uh, once you dislike someone, it colored uh. everything else. And like the affective, in a sense, you, you lose trust. And, and your, your kind of dislike or hatred then forms an entire worldview. And that's, I guess, what I was really thinking about in your book was the, the relationship between the affective and the, and, and the preference polarization and how independent they actually were. Right, yeah. I mean, in my cases, they are tracking together, and so it's hard to disentangle. Um, I don't know. I mean, the, the literature I've seen come out of American politics suggest that it could be going either way, you know, depending mm -hmm. on the, the research design or the question, the specific question they're looking at on, on surveys and whatnot. Um, but I think what's important is that they're both, you know, critical for how democratic politics do, does or does not work, right? right. Um, both like the extent to which you dislike and disagree with somebody. Um, and I don't know how easy it is to disentangle, but, you know, I, I certainly welcome future work that looks more at this. Um, the negative affect and the positive affect is sometimes overlooked 
in existing studies of democratic transitions. Like we focus quite a bit on whether or not actors are able to agree with each other, but not, you know, whether or not they're willing to sit down and compromise, you know, and talk to each other and whether they feel comfortable doing so. Um, so I think that is, you know, very fruitful for future exploration um, in terms of how do the actors charged with navigating a democratic transition, like, you know, do they like each other? Are they able to work together? Yeah, that definitely tracks with my experience in Egypt where, mm -hmm. yeah, there was just absolute mistrust of the Muslim Brotherhood, even if they were taking positions which, uh, which their, you know, the other parts of the opposition might have agreed with, there was so much mistrust and dislike that it almost overwhelmed that. Right, and that might, you know, in, in another case where, where you don't have exactly the same conditions, I do think, you know, the fact that there was disagreement, any disagreement, um, combined with that level of mistrust might have pushed it over the edge, right? Mm -hmm. um, it did feel like secular uh, or, you know, non-brotherhood uh, members of the opposition in, in Egypt felt like they couldn't trust the brotherhood on anything they said, any compromise they made, um, any small, you know, overture that they, they tried to do. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a bit of an open question. In my cases, they do track together. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, reading, my reading of the, uh, literature from the third wave uh, studies is that that's kind of missing, that relationship between different opposition groups. Um, you know, there is quite a bit of, of um, study of the relationship and, uh, you know, both the level of, of cooperation and also agreement politically between the opposition and the regime, but looking within the opposition, I think, is something that the book does um, anew. Now, when you when you look at this link between your uh, between the the, the, the pre two thousand eleven repression and then the post two thousand eleven polarization, how, how do you how are you able to disentangle um, kind of the historical legacies from the simple from you know kind of the more contemporary things like battling over constitutions or uncertainty or or media environment or that sort of thing? Uh, how do you establish the link between the earlier repression and the later polarization? Yeah, so the last part of the book um, called After Authoritarianism starts mm -hmm. to look at the democratic transition, and that's where um, I try to make the link between what came, for, what came before over the last, you know, three decades before, um, and how it affects the drafting of the new constitution, scheduling and running first elections, and then creating a framework for transitional justice after 2011. Um, I do cut off my analysis, although I talk about what's happened since um, in 2014, because I think since then, you know, the way in which the CC regime has treated the Brotherhood has certainly had an exacerbating effect on a lot of these things. Um, but yeah, so in, in a place like Tunisia, um, the way in which these things mattered for making these very difficult decisions and moving the transition forward, um, you know, everyone pointed to these two different um, agreements in 2003 and 2005, one of which uh, was held outside of the country in France, um, where quite a bit of the framework that was used after 2011 was already agreed upon. Um, and this was because they had, you know, the physical space to be outside of Tunisia, making these decisions, having these 
conversations. Um, and, you know, they'd already essentially agreed on the role of religion and uh, the role of religion in politics and how that might be enshrined in the Constitution. Now, that's not to say this has been a completely seamless transition, right? I mean, mm -hmm. it took them three years to draft a Constitution. There were certainly, you know, vitriolic statements that were made about whether having elections at a certain time would benefit Anatha. There were, you know, the very sad assassinations that happened. Um, but this feeling of, you know, we're all better off if we keep moving forward was there and kept bringing them back to the, the table. Um, in a place like Egypt, you know, you never even get to a framework for transitional justice. Um, even though there was some compromise under the Mubarak regime, it was never focused on the role of religion in politics prior to 2010. And so there wasn't that level of of comp of you know uh, agreement on that when these these issues came up and you know whether it had to do with um, the extent to which other groups disliked the brotherhood or disagreed with them um, the way in which elections were were held and how early they were um, the the way in which you know the whole system was decided really favored the brotherhood or it was at least it appeared to favor the brotherhood in a way that uh, people you know. Uh, opponents felt was quite unfair. So tracking this through the way that repression shapes these, uh, these, uh, these conditions, um, how much of this do you think is really located just in the individuals and the experiences they went through? Um, you know, so the, the people who were actually physically in prison together or in exile together, and how much of it actually gets passed down through generations? Like, so younger Brotherhood members or younger Anahta members who didn't personally experience um, these things, do the effects continue? That's a great question. Um, I think in the case of, you know, at, obviously at the individual level, um, I, I think it really matters. Um, you know, certain interviews I did with people like Rasha Ganushi or Monsef Marzuki, um, their personal experience was so informative for the rest of kind of their political development. Um, at the same time, I think when you have individuals who experience these things and then are in leadership positions, like particularly within the Muslim Brotherhood, um, when they're able to, you know, establish a certain kind of uh, criteria for membership, establish an identity that then is, you know, uh, transfused, transfuses through the organization, um, you know, it has an, an important effect on future members as well. So they get socialized um, into it. Right, right. And, you know, Khalil has talked quite a bit about this in his book, and I cite him a lot on this, mm -hmm. um, where, you know, there, there are these new requirements for being a Muslim Brotherhood member over time that really require loyalty, dedication, commitment to the cause, um, in a way that, you know, is not necessarily reflective of the new members, but the old members and how they see being a member of the Muslim Brotherhood. And then the, the new generation then is going to be shaped by what they're going through personally. And, when, and again, I know this is beyond the scope of your book, but, mm -hmm. uh, you know, thinking about the effects of uh, what Sisi has done to the Muslim Brotherhood in Egypt, um, you, one would imagine that that is going to have similarly uh, massive effects on, on, on the, uh, both the affect and the preferences of those members. Yeah, I mean, sadly, the Sisi regime, you know, well, I guess maybe the one positive of, of how repressive the Sisi regime is, is that, um, you know, since 2013, you've had uh, increasing repression, and it started with the Muslim Brotherhood. 
Um, you know, they're a terrorist organ, they're labeled a terrorist organization by the end of the year. Um, 60,000 uh, members or people accused of being members are arrested. Um, you know, it certainly had, at least initially, a really terrible effect on the Brotherhood, I think, in terms of, of this identity feeling very victimized. Um, one thing I found, though, and I, I think uh, last year I published a, a monkey cage piece on this, is that as other groups have been affected. So, you know, we first had the Brotherhood being repressed by the CC regime, but the CC regime has taken kind of a new approach to opposition. They've now, you know, exiled a lot of people. They've repressed a lot of people. I think the official numbers are over 100,000 people who have been arrested for political activity, and it's well beyond the Brotherhood at this point. Um, and you see, you know, uh, when prominent members of the Muslim Brotherhood have been uh, have died in, in prison, the rhetoric that you see from secular opposition groups talking about how inhumane this is, and even if we disagree with them that this is, you know, completely inappropriate, very sad for Egyptian democracy, um, that I think was unthinkable in 2013. The rhetoric has really changed. So if there's one positive, you know, it's possible that as repression has come to touch a number of different groups in Egypt in the current moment, uh, it's softening some of these identity politics that have, you know, been problematic in the past. Now, you you tried to, uh, you said, you mentioned earlier that you tried to get at um, some of the mechanisms here through uh, a lab experiment. Uh, walk us through that a little bit and kind of what you did to try and uh, establish the causality. Yeah, so this um, is, I think, it's chapter seven in the book. There's also a world politics piece um, that's just the experiment um, from the book. And what I tried to do, you know, based on on feedback from my very smart advisors and more senior colleagues, um, one of the issues with my argument was that if regimes are repressing strategically, um, whatever kind of causal effect I wanted to attribute to it would might might be messed up by issues of endogeneity. So um, an experiment let me randomized quote-unquote repression obviously you know that is not ethical to do but what i did was randomize the information that people got about repressive state uh, policies and whether or not it affected a group to which the individual had been um, assigned to in this you know lab experiment setup um, so whether it affected the group uh, to which the individual belonged individually you know just that group and another group um, that they learned about was uh, not affected or um, if multiple groups were affected. So the idea here was to prime a widespread repressive environment and a targeted repressive environment and then look at the aggregate effects across, you know, multiple sessions of this lab experiment. Um, and I had a control group that received no information um, about repression. Uh, and what I find is that there are higher levels of both affective and uh, preference polarization here, you know, meaning negative affect in a targeted repressive environment mm -hmm. and lower levels of both in a widespread repressive environment. Now, in terms of like the, the advice you were getting from your advisors, and it does raise that bigger question of, do you think that uh, the regimes are strategic in how they do this? Is this Mubarak intentionally dividing the opposition by polarizing them in this way? Or do you think it's more of an unintended effect of, of these various policies? I think it's the latter. I think it's an unintended effect. Um, and, you know, with observational data, it's sometimes hard to conclusively argue that. Uh, but what I do in chapters three and four is try to show how consistent these regimes are in the way in which they repress opposition groups over time. 
Um, and at certain moments, you know, it would have made sense for the Mubarak or the Ben Ali regime to update and repress in different ways in order to demobilize the opposition. Mm. There are moments, you know, in, in the case of Tunisia, widespread repression really does bring the opposition together around 2005. That would have been a time for the Ben Ali regime to update and target some group to splinter them off, um, you know, to basically divide the opposition. Um, so, you know, my understanding of the way in which repression works in these places is that in, in the Middle East, um, and you know, elsewhere in the world as well, um, major state building initiatives happened under colonialism. And so what I try to do in, in chapter three is trace the way in which foreign powers structured um, coercive institutions and intelligence gathering institutions in a way that conditions uh, repression that happens after independence. Um, and then show over time that the way in which these regimes repress is very consistent when it should update if these regimes are being strategic. So the institutions really matter. I mean, these guys learned how to learned how to repress in a particular way, and that's pretty much all they can do. Yeah, and I think you know the current situation in in Egypt um, is a bit of an anomaly for uh, Egypt. Egypt has long, I mean, in my understanding of it, um, has long been a targeted repressive regime. It can switch the targets, but it's always you know co-opting one group and targeting another with physical repression. Um, and if you look at what the Sisi regime is doing, I mean, they've had to spend a lot of, of time and resources to try and transform um, their repressive institutions into more widespread ones. You know, they've built new prisons, they've, um, you know, done a bunch of things that suggest it's not so easy to just update and do something different. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of like the, the larger uh, takeaway of the book then, as we start looking at, you know, the possibilities of democratic transition in the Middle East, uh, kind of more broadly, I mean, what do you think the major kind of the major takeaways that you'd like people to, to walk away with after reading the book? That's a great question. Um, I guess maybe the main, you know, I, one of the things that um, I've long been interested in is Islamist political behavior. Mm -hmm. um, and I think, you know, what I hope the book shows is that Islamists are very much a product of their environment um, mm -hmm. and that repression, the way in which it does or does not target other groups, um, might set some of these groups up to fail when they're finally in power. Um, you know, it, it might create such bad affect and such large levels of disagreement with other groups that um, it makes it very difficult, you know, to make the compromises and cooperation that are necessary for moving forward. Um, I guess I would also hope that, you know, a focus on the individuals and the groups that are being repressed is something that people will think about possibly differently after reading this um, and thinking through, you know, what are the long-term effects of this? Um, and I think, you know, in terms of potential transitional justice solutions, thinking through how, you know, in Tunisia, you end up with a very successful transitional justice campaigns, again, not without its flaws, but, um, overwhelmingly positive, where because everyone, every political group, um, you know, had been affected, you end up with a transitional justice campaign that acknowledges that. It acknowledges that Islamists had it worse, but everybody was victimized by the, the former regime. So, you know, let's figure out how to move forward from this. Um, I don't know quite what the solution is, but in Egypt, had a transitional justice campaign occurred, it would have been highly politicized. Um, so, you know, for people who are more intelligent than I am, um, thinking through what it would mean to overcome this very divisive identity and its implications for affective and preference polarization 
um, would be key for figuring out how you overcome these kinds of legacies. Oh, it's so interesting. Um, Liz, thanks for joining us. We've been, we've been speaking with Elizabeth Nugent of Yale University about her new book, After Repression, How Polarization Derails Democratic Transition, just published by Princeton University Press. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.